Ladies and gentlemen, it's time once again for Poets of the East. And uh, <laughs> what you're going to do about me? Well, you're going to hear some wonderful poetry, that's for sure. We have some amazing poets to share with you today. And I have the great good fortune of introducing my compatriot, my co-host, and the incomparable Mr. Misha Danduta. Misha, welcome. Good evening uh, here in Europe. Good e- good afternoon in the United States. Thank you very much, dear poet. Thank you very much, dear maestro, for uh, inviting me also to this very special edition of uh, the Poets of the East. As you were very inspirationally mentioning, it is a kind, another, a different kind of East this time. We have uh, two poets from the United States and one from the United Kingdom and uh, three different voices, very original in the same time, complementary, they fulfill each other, and uh, therefore the effect of the, uh, is uh, very equilibrated, is very balanced, and uh, I, really, uh, I really admire you for an excellent selection of uh, today's uh, constellation. Um, Dominic Windrum, Dominic, uh, sorry, I, I was uh, thinking about Dominic Windrum, who also was uh, one of our guests uh, during those uh, those episodes, Dominic Albanese, and a very interesting personality, uh, a very an excellent poet uh, with a very singular voice. Um, I found out some very interesting details, biographic details from uh, from his uh, existence. I was always looking for the key uh, to his poems in the religious dimension as. Uh, he uh, used to live in, uh, as he used to be a monk, uh, but uh, there, are, there are also very interesting aspects that, uh, that uh, uh, tell, tell us about his previous military, uh, military experience, 
and uh, which actually combined this in a very original way with the religious one. I'm not going to say more. We will uh, hear uh, uh, we will hear this directly from his uh, poems. Then we have uh, a very original and uh, positive and optimist Dizzy Wade, excellent British poet, uh, uh, really uh, or a very original voice in uh, uh, the field of the independent poetry in the in the United Kingdom. What's uh, very uh, characteristic for her is the concentration of the verse. So her way and attitude and the capacity, ability of telling things uh, in a couple of uh, in a couple of words, sometimes only with two words. Um, I happen to um, I happen to uh, remember uh, a very short. Uh, a very short uh, uh, affirmation of her, a very short, uh, actually it is a, sh a short poem, but she doesn't consider it like this. She considers this like an aphorism. I don't have to earn or explain my pride to you, but I work for it. Uh, it is very characteristic for her, her way of concentrating, of, uh, of uh, expressing uh, a lot of uh, very profound things uh, in only a couple of words in one sentence and then finally we have um, we have maybe the, the most famous among our today's guests Deborah um, uh, Hodgetts a uh, very well known and, and very appreciated novelist uh, and uh, and the screenplay writer uh, which uh, her, her whose name is actually very well known to the ones following the British and the American cinema a real royal program a real uh, a real uh, um, privilege for the ones listening today uh, to the uh, to the uh, of the poets of the east uh, congratulations rick and once again thank you very much for making me a part of this uh, at this level and for giving me the privilege of uh, shortly commenting each of those brilliant names you are bringing each Saturday uh, to the serial. Well, thank you so very much, my friend. Your experience, your skills, your talents, uh, you bring so much to this uh, experience. Uh, I can't thank you enough. But without any further ado, let me bring you part one of Dominic Albanese. Ladies and gentlemen, I have the great good fortune to bring you a very special voice today. I bring you a talented poet, an amazing storyteller, a man who's had more adventures than most people have even read about. Ladies and gentlemen, let me bring you Mr. Dominic Albanese. Dominic, welcome. Welcome. Thank you, Rick. Um, interestingly enough, I guess a part of it all about spring and hope springs eternal in the breasts of men Uh I'm I'm reinvigorated about the whole process of writing, and uh, I guess, interestingly enough, I started writing when I was about 12 years old, when I first became attracted to the opposite sex. Always and a good motivator. The first, the first poem I ever wrote in my life, The Sea, The Sand, and Rebecca her small footprints in the Coney Island surf line. And again, I published a book in 2019 
called Dear Miss B, which was the story of my seventh grade school teacher who I had written over 50 letters to her from my time in the Army, both in basic training, jump school, special forces training, then from Okinawa, Laos, Vietnam, and back in Okinawa. And uh, she died, and her daughter sent me the letters. But it was her who inspired me. And in the collection of letters was a little note in Miss B's handwriting that said, he was my student, I recognized his raw talent, and he adored me. And uh, uh, up till then, I had published 13 books of poetry. Uh, I've never self-published anything. Um, there's a woman up in Northern California named Donna Lee Phillips, who I've known for 56 years. And she used to be a publisher and a kind of a world-class, well-known photographer. She started the photo school and some magazines. And um, she and I were friends in San Francisco. And surprisingly enough, one day I got this note on the Facebook uh, say, is this the Dominic that used to work on my Fiat? And I went, yeah. Oh, my goodness, Donna Lee. And for about two years, she collated, edited, transcribed, and then sent out to both Seb Dubinsky in Denmark and Liam Maines in Kentucky and uh, James Goddard in uh, England and all those pretty well-respected small presses published my work. And uh, uh, let me stop talking about myself, Joe. I bore myself. Well, that's okay. Your adventures <laughs> from uh, your time as a young man in New York, your uh, wonderful and amazing and colorful friends there, your time in the service overseas in the Far East, uh, and then you returned and had an adventuresome life here. And one of the things well, that I, I want you to talk about for just a minute is not only did you have a bit of a rough-and-tumble life, but you also took time and, and changed your life and found time to do serious religious training in a, a monastery, if I'm not mistaken. Well, yes, but... Uh... Okay. On one of my last horrible drug runs, I got a flat tire on my motorcycle, and I was sitting on the corner of Hyde and Sutter in San Francisco, and the bike front tire was flat, and I think I was a little flatter. <laughs> and this woman sat down next to me in a blue jumper, she belonged to an outfit that was then called the Holy Order of Man and the Brown Brotherhood. And they were in a lot of cities and they were, they weren't out and out aesthetics, but they were pretty, they did a lot of outreach and service work. And she put her arm around my shoulder and she said, you don't have to live like this anymore. And I was like, 
Okay. Well, I want you to call this number. And I called this number, and it was a woman up in Oregon uh, who was married to an Orthodox priest. And to be a parish priest in an Orthodox church, you have to be married. Uh, uh, like higher monks and bishops and metropolitans are all single and celibate, but the regular clergy, I mean, it's funny. How are you going to marriage counsel somebody if you've never been married? But that neither here nor there. But anyway, after a few false starts and really looking into the fact that I had been so burned out by religion when I was a little kid, uh, I got thrown out of Catholic school. Uh, I told that nun, if you try to hit me one more time, I will pick up this chair and hit you with it. And that nonsense you keep selling me about, I'm going to go to hell forever if I play with my weenie, or only Catholics go to heaven. You people got some serious, serious problems. And anyway, I took it upon myself. While I was in prison, I did correspondence work with a Orthodox monastery in Pennsylvania. And I took about two solid years. And all I did was to take care of the grounds at the church and study religion. And not just Christian religion, but Judaism, Islam, Hindu, Sikh, uh, uh, every kind of religion I could think of, as far back as the Hoteps. And the, the thing that struck me, and having been a big Joseph Campbell fan, my father-in-law, my daughter's grandfather, was very close friends with Joseph Campbell and his The Myth with a Thousand Faces. And I started to see where each of the religions just recycled certain myths. But what I came to understand, and this is going to sound funny in a way, but one of the things the priest encouraged me to do was start going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And he had already investigated one of the oldest, well, in fact, the third oldest meeting on the West Coast the Loyola men's group and he had spoken to some people there and said I kind of don't know what to do with this guy you know he's a ex Green Beret ex biker uh, he's not taking drugs or drinking and one of the guys told him don't even think about it we got the guy so I showed up on that Monday night and they told me go sit up next to that guy in the corner and his name was Ira Miller now, maybe some people needed to hear a little gentler, a little more compassionate, a little more tolerant message, but I heard exactly, exactly what I needed to hear. Sit down, shut up, or I'll knock you out. And for about four years, I mentored me, and when he died, he had already made arrangements with his sponsor that I would be grandfathered in. And that man's been my sponsor now for 28 years. And the whole idea about if nothing changes, nothing changes. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says we suffer from the delusion 
we can be like other people. This delusion must be smashed. And I've been working at that for a long time. I've done service work and public speaking and been to treatment centers for 25 years. And the deal in the program is to share your experience, strength, and hope. And I base it all on a cooking show that used to be in San Francisco called Yan Can Cook. And I tell them always, Yan Can Cook, you can too. I got sober, you can too. <laughs> but one of my published works is a book called By Some Happenstance, published by Chris Hagenbloom at uh, poetic Justice Books and Arts <clears throat> Driving in the nighttime traffic Past a happy new fortune cafe Demolition teams Got an abandoned school Red light, stop light, headlight Brake light Passing in night traffic Closer to home The sportsman's outlet Stuffed fish, sharp knives, hiking boots More familiar landscape I am alone, as I have been for a year now. Closed up stores, drive-in grease pits full of leftover dead cow patties and rancid fries. A small oil leak in my motor stinks. Approaching home, I laugh. The new Happy Fortune Cafe, indeed. <sighs> Very nice. <sighs> Very nice. The night, the night demons still call to me. April full moon Friday, but I am more of a sunlight person now. Wonder whatever happened to my side shift knucklehead or the dirty jeans I once proudly wore. Whisper more than call. Fishing beats fast bikes any day. Regrets about the past? Not many. I was foolish. Not wise yet. Just less foolish, more carefully aware, less concerned about what was more hopeful about what might be. Oh. Very nice. Crossover October. Crossover October into winter November and the wind, the Scorpio wind, over clear, chilly water as we grow older. One year older, gifted with time. Nature changes while almost everything dies in order. Summer in limbo. The first signs of snowfall on the mountain. Oh. Folsom Dam. When I was in prison, I had a job at the graveyard. Old convicts buried, unmarked, and forgotten. Over three years, I numbered every grave between 1919 to 1978. 200 souls were laid to rest. I never saw their faces or heard their voices, yet I know all their names. Now, some 15 years later, it is a part of who I am. We are all connected in some way, what, or way, or even when we pass away. Now, I did spend about 30-something years trying to trying to, oh no, I see, you know, I, they didn't even have the term post-traumatic stress disorder sure. when I got back from Vietnam in 66. 
Sure. They used to either call it shell-shocked or bullet-numb. Uh, but, uh, and I really dislike the stereotypical portrayal of Vietnam veterans. <laughs> I happened to be in the Guardians of the Green Beret and the Special Forces Brotherhood, and I know a lot of guys who came home, well, the majority of them, surprisingly enough, stayed in and retired, but they never had that tripwire mentality or a lot of them died from Agent Orange. There's no question about that. And the suicide numbers are off the scale. But my own battle with that stuff had more to do with, what are you telling me here? I'm supposed to go over there and kill anything that moves and I'm supposed to come back here and work for $8 an hour and act like I'm a happy guy? What? At that point in my life, I had no concept of right or wrong. There was only getting caught. There's a little quiet poem I wrote said all she wanted was the truth. That was very hard for me then because I had no idea what the truth was. And you know, for a lot of years, I just was berserk. I, I just didn't care. I broke the law with abandon. I ran. I gunned. I did crazy stuff. And But at, at 40 years old, it got old. It got tiresome. And I was decided that I'd go back to Vietnam in my underpants, unarmed, before I'd go back to prison. But in my book, Bastards Had the Whole Hill Mind, which is subtitled Vietnam Poems. We'll hear a little bit more from Dominic in just a minute. But I wanted to get your reaction, Misha. Any thoughts on what we've heard from this powerful, uh, very, very experienced poet who's seen hell and heaven, too? I am almost silent. It is, I am, I was just my, like my microphone. I was muted. It is incredible what this, I mean, I thought I knew him. I thought I knew him as a poet and the inspirational sources of his poetry. But what he revealed today, what he mentions, puts a completely different and more complex light on all his poems, on all of his collections, on his way of thinking. And actually this apparent conflict, this apparent contradiction between his very actually strong and sane, but in the same time elementary way of thinking, this very honest way of being of his, and the social and the political and the military reality he was confronted with, this very elementary and in the same time very pure and complex sensitivity, sensitivity which created, helped him creating all those short, concentrated, but powerful poems. Actually, I repeat, all this brings a, a different, completely different and more complex light on his, uh, on his creation. And uh, more and more, I recognize in him, in, as a poet, the influence of the 
nightmare military experience uh, and which were balanced later by this uh, religious uh, religious feeling. A very special poet, a very special author, a very special person. Maybe last but not least, the, the just brilliant way he's able to explain the influence of his biographic evolution of his biographic uh, uh, things that happened to him, to his uh, uh, to his poetry. Whole my my whole admiration uh, and uh, my whole appreciation for once again for your very inspired uh, choose for your very inspired selection, Rick. Okay, here's part two, okay. Dominic, and then we'll uh, and we'll hear from Kizzy. Here we go, Dominic, part two. Now I know I'll find it. You hear it is. Oh, uh, uh, oh, come on. You know, uh, here it is. <clears throat> Stand and deliver. Oh, the highwayman, flintlock cock jewels and gold, ride off to the hideout. But later, weep alone for the guilt of it. We have been taken for the worst armed robbery in history, for a bunch of history, since about 1952. None of this is simple, easy, or only one-sided. Had we been like a true bandit, stick him up, give it up, or bleed, motherfucker, well, there's a certain honor to that. As honorableness as it is, to claim to be nation-building, liberating, creating a safer world, all the time undressing Pedro to dress Rosemary. My time at war 50 years ago, I can still smell it, feel it, taste it, have it wake me up sweat-drenched, shaking sorrow. As the ones who pulled the lever and opened the cash drawer allowed us all to be used for chum, on the sea of corporate fishing grounds. Later, we would lose. Yeah, all you guys in the VFW, we lost. Got ass kicked, butt stuck, and sent home tail dragon. So Ronnie Star Wars Reagan invades Granada. Oh boy, San Juan Hill, not exactly. Same agenda, however. Denny has the jelly bean brain fart to claim the Vietnam syndrome is over. Holy shit, Batman. For 13 years now, we've been both sides of a thousand-year tribal clusterfuck and call it spreading democracy. The same stuff farmers spread. At least they're honest about it. Shit on the ground grows corn. Lies on the airway grows nothing but more sadness and death. But anyway... Every year in April for about four or five years now, I try to publish a poem a day on Facebook. And Ted Berrigan once told me that the most important thing about poetry is not forgetting to write it. <laughs> April 1st. April 1st at 8.02 a.m. The same daily quiet old man's life. A comfort and a bit lonely but safe, semi-serene, and not a lot of choices over time 
or just them daily quiet days. April the 2nd, uh, Segundo Aprilo, a bit brisk this a.m., sat for an hour with my coffee. I visualized all the motorcycles I have ever owned. I had an animated conversation with some of my long gone, now dead lovers, pals, and even both my brothers, even if I had to yell at the youngest one of them. A memory of my dad singing some off-key show tune, and a few more about both overheard cafe chatter, and driving by that cafe in a Ferrari, acting all Joe Cool and shit. To that brisk morning feeling, of just stay alive as long as you can. Even with some good Friday thinking and all that stuff about heaven or hell, yep, your own mind is a bubble machine. And like all bubbles or balloons, they pop sometimes. In a cafe that just celebrated 65 years in Frisco, where one time I did hear word for word, he is so cute and so good in bed, but he is dumb as a rock. <laughs> I have a little collection called Overhoed Cafe Chatter, but I haven't published it yet or even sent it or, you know, I'm not sure. The April 3rd, the last night, I had the strangest, most involved dream I can ever remember having. A whole bunch of my dead pals and I was sitting around in various locations, it seems, anyhow. None of the conversations were coherent, just snatches and times gone by. What did that fucking Dominic do now? That's when I remember. Memory eternal. An equal mix of men and women. All they had faces were the faces they had then. Not one of us was old. And that's how I do it, you know. But and since I'm most yeah, that is another one of your extraordinary poems, my friend. I hope you continue to write for years and years yet, sharing that wisdom that is so hard won, and you so generously share. Every day till I am no more, and you know what, um. I know you had Karina on the other day, and uh, she and I have a book in progress called The Light in the Hallway. And sometimes the most important thing, I think, is what Jim Harrison used to say about poetry is the language of the soul once you teach the soul how to speak. And, you know, I'm, I'm on this. I'm not giving up. And I have two books in process. I have Garage Tales, 1967 to 2012, and all stories about cars and people and women and cars and people and like that. <laughs> and the other one, the other one's called Neptune's Arms, about a fencing joint in Coney Island that I used to be the errand boy for, and. Uh, I'm working, you know, uh, one of the things I've done, though, is just before this really hot weather hits us, I spent about most of March completely tuning up my house and my yard and 
making everything just so. And uh, I really thank you for the opportunity to read my work. It's been my pleasure, my friend. And I want to thank you so very much for your generosity of your time. My friend Dominic, take care of yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, Dominic Albanese. Thank you, brother. You too, bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Dominic Albanese, an amazing poet. What say you, my brother Mirza? Well, I would remark... In, uh, I would remark, in addition, his uh, harsh, tough, almost black humor, his incredible power, human power, of making fun of all those things that inspired him as a poet, but hurt him so, so badly as a human being. Nevertheless, he finds power for making, for making fun of them, and for writing some poems impregnated with that strong black humor he has and uh, actually being the winner, actually winning the fight against them and uh, managing to be uh, once again and forever the one being up and the end victorious. Yes, the former officer in Vietnam who won that war, even if the United States were uh, lost him, lost it. If there was a real winner of the Vietnam War, he was Dominic Albanese and the ones like admiration and respect. Absolutely. Well, my friend, now in a totally different direction, the fine British poet, Kizzy Wade, part one. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to welcome Miss Lizzie Kizzy Wade. <laughs> welcome. Welcome to Poets of the East. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It is our great pleasure. I've had the good fortune to hear you read many times uh, at different po poetry venues, and I've been touched very much by what you write, and I wanted to bring you on and let you talk to a, a global audience one more time. Uh, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Well... I usually like to ask my poets, um, you know, life is complicated. We do so many things. There are so many things demanded of us, family duties, job, responsibilities with friends. And, and it takes a special kind of person, I think, to also say, I want to spend time writing. I want to take time to share the thoughts in my heart, the thoughts in my head, to talk about what I see in the world and share that. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about when you first started writing, when you first started your own creative efforts. So I'd say I started properly writing um, a year ago. Ah. Um, just as we came into lockdown, my friend 
Daniel Kerr. I knew him from sports I play. And um, I was bored one evening and he's shared a picture of the myth and legends evening that he was going to poetry evening and it had a really cold drawing on, on it so I went and sort of unexpectedly fell in love with poetry. Um, but sort of before that I'd written stories at school. I always really liked creative writing and um, I'd written scripts for films and stuff. I'm really into Tim Burton and that sort of <laughs> thing. So I'd always written, but seriously, from about a year ago. Wonderful, wonderful. I, I'm, I am curious, uh, Tim Burton has such a unique cinematic vision and storytelling style. Uh, do you have a favorite Tim Burton movie? Yes, my favorite is Big Fish, which is one not a lot of people heard of. But I think it's a really good sort of introspective movie that makes think and you get a different perspective each time you watch it, I think. You know, I have a funny coincidence with that movie. Um, I, I like it very much, but one day my son, I have a, a son uh, who's uh, well into his 40s, and he said to me one day, Dad, I saw this movie that reminds me of you very much. And I said, really? I, that, that's interesting. What What's this movie? And he said, it's called Big Fish. And I said, Really? That's interesting because I'm not a fisherman. I, I didn't know anything about the film. And I thought, well, I have to watch this movie. And ah, after I watched the movie, I could see where he would assume that, that he would make this connection because I've had a very unusual life and I've done a bunch of very unusual things, most of which are preposterous. <laughs> So I, I really like that film. That was very nice of you to mention that. <laughs> um, so so when you write, I'm curious, um, do you do you write as a practice or do you wait for inspiration to come? Uh, I I think it's sort of a mix because I write a lot about topical issues. My main Three, I'd say, areas of writing at the minute are mental health. I have obsessive compulsive disorder myself. Disability, I use a wheelchair. So that's also part of my life. And national identity, as in government and stuff. Um, I'm very political, so if... A news article annoys me enough. I'll write a poem as a response to it. But Absolutely. I also, I, I'm an Insta poet. I have an Instagram and a Facebook. So I write daily haikus through that. So I do have a 
practice for writing, but I'd say mainly it comes from anger at the establishment more than anything. I, I can completely appreciate that. I, I've been writing political verses for a very long time myself. I, I started when I was just a teenager. <clears throat> my, uh, my country was pursuing a terrible war in Vietnam, and I thought that was awful. And uh, I, I, I always enjoyed cartooning, too. And I have some books of cartoons, political cartoons, that started in the late 1800s and went through the decades. And I've seen anti-Civil War articles. I've seen cartoons about World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, etc. So I decided I would do my own cartoons. So I've been doing political cartoons and writing political verses for a very long time. My, my daughter uh, will say to me sometime, you know, why do you even bother? You know, why, why bother? And I said, you know, I believe that if you're an artist and you're, you're inspired to share a thought, you should do that. You shouldn't, you know, pick up that pen <laughs> and write it down because someone's going to gain something from it. Even if they disagree, they'll, maybe they'll learn how to argue better. <laughs> I, um, I also write a lot for my own mental health. I've become a bit of an OCD activist in a way because it's a very stigmatized disorder that a lot of people trivialize. So I write about my own experiences with it and that's got a lot of views online and a lot of people have said it's helped them. So, so I, I feel like there's always a reason to write, even if it's just to get something off your chest. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have had some situations in my life that I found so troubling. And I thought, how can I deal with this? I know. I'll write it down so that I understand it better. And once I write it down, I can then put it aside because I said what I needed to say. I thought about it the way I needed to think about it. And it was good for me to get it off my chest. And I, I can completely understand you know, I think you're also doing something very valuable. When you share your insights as a person with some of these issues, when you share what you see, what you know, what you experience, you help other people understand it better. I think that's marvelous. Yeah, it started out as that, to be honest, because um, when I first started turning up to poetry events, I said it was a myth and legend event that got me started so that was sort of the route I started going down and then I met someone called Sammy FC Tight you might have heard of them the, around a lot and they sort of spent um, a good few hours with me on Zoom talking to me about my experiences as a disabled person getting me to write them down and getting me to talk about them and that changed my outlook as a poet and then I met other very outspoken people like 
deliver, deliver, deliver poet and people like that who open my eyes to other themes such as national identity and socialism and capitalism and other stuff that I write about now. Absolutely. Well, we've been talking for almost 10 minutes now, and I haven't had a chance to hear one of your good poems. So if you want to take a minute and go ahead and dig one up, that'd be fantastic. And I look forward to hearing three or four more. Where would you like me to stop? My dear, you go ahead and begin wherever you'd like to begin. I think I'm going to read my current favorite that a lot of people have heard over the last weekend. It's called A Place to Be Proud Of, and it's about the current British argument over raising flags every day. Um, it's horribly contrived, but this is what I wrote about it. Raise flags to raise patriotism. Be proud of your flag. Be proud of your country. That's a new distraction. I mean, message. And don't forget when the left point out the hypocrisy and making a divisive decision to promote unity. They're just being anti-British. No, I'll be proud of Britain when the streets are safe. And we can trust figures of authority to make sure of that. When schools stop pandering to impolite play playground comedians and Casanovas and come up with a pragmatic prevention for predators before their jerks become jail time and their flippant taunts tortured flashbacks. I'll be proud of Britain. When the ruling class is held to account, not just the eating, educated Egypt who constantly choose the selfish route, parliamentarily protected from the death, poverty and misery they cause, but those with blue blood who still give out British Empire memberships, those who we a secular nation, ask God to save. I wonder how they're coping, dealing with all that racism and pedophilia internally must be hard. I'll be proud of Britain when financial protection is afforded to all, especially those who spend their days and patience on people and patience. Tell me, did that 1% pay rise take 1% of your sleep that night? Or did you care for the carers whose allowance you disallowed when you raised minimum wage, but not their threshold? If they retrained like Fatima, the, the country's future wouldn't be in cyber, rather in ruin. But what was your bonus this year, Boris? 
I'll be proud of Britain when rights aren't political pawns to be protected and sacrificed. No matter whether you or your book believe in a group's reality or struggle, all rights are human rights. And when that's no longer a matter of opinion, debate, or a valid manifesto item, or I have the right to protest for that, then I will raise a flag. Until then, maybe take those flagpoles and use them as spines for Tory MPs that not only manipulate our Union Jack into a political symbol, but also let down the average Jack with pedantic policies that seem good on the face of it, but when in fruition feed frowns. Jack wants to be proud, unified, but anymore, we all do. Thank you. Very, very good. Very good. Thank you so much. You know, Mersha, I, I particularly like that idea of using the flagpoles for spine. <laughs> well, it is a very peculiar way of saying it, dear Rick, and but I think it matches uh, the essence of the whole situation. I am fully impressed by the talent and the energy of this uh, young lady, and also by her talent, uh, by her way of what I was remarking at the beginning, um, concentrating the expression in such an original and incredibly mature way, given her, given her very, uh, her, given the, the fact that she is very young, uh, and the very complex and deep understanding of the social, political, and historical reality of the, uh, of the, our contemporary and by the fresh and uh, in the same time very original but mature way she's putting all of this into uh, her poems i mean she was mentioning writing a political poetry it is true but this is not that kind of uh, uh, of that kind of uh, uh, empty um, unmotivational uh, fight militantism uh, not argumented uh, not doubled by uh, by talent by contrary it is the her talent it is her very original voice which gives uh essence which gives uh, uh, uh balance and way to those uh, to those causes and uh, i'm sure that in 50 years when someone reading her poems without knowing the cause that determined them, that determined their apparition, they will be impressed by the poems themselves. In short, her poem resists independently on the cause that give birth to them, and this is very important for a poor, a very, uh, for a very young, uh, very young one. Congratulations and good luck, Kizzy Wade. Okay, here we go with part two of Kizzy. Uh, a very talented young poet uh, with a voice that uh, belies her very short time as a poet. And she has a very deep soul, and I think she expresses it marvelously. You're absolutely right, Misha. 
Here we go, part two. During the v Vietnam War, uh, the, the rejoinder from the right was always, well, if you don't like America, just leave. And, <laughs> and many of us said, well, we do like America. We just want to make it better. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we have these, like you, we have these lovely slogans, but all too often the very practical world does not does not live up to that. Well, I just think you can be proud of where you come from, but also want more from it, want better and want different. Like, and you can be proud of where you come from and some of the history, while also being critical of the government and some some of the other history when it comes to race treatment of people of different sexualities, men's health, all of that needs to change, but you can also be proud of where you come from while acknowledging that. Absolutely. Would you like to read us another one? Yes. I think I'll go down the mental health route this time if I can find one. It might take me a second. Well, in in this world, finding mental health probably does take a second or two. <laughs> yeah. Let's let's go for, go for a more chill out short one called penguins. Sounds good. Imagine if we were all completely honest. If we didn't try and decorate our feelings, our experiences, with the jewels of social convention, although our beliefs and opinions, for fear they shine too intensely. If sometimes we disregarded discomfort, or at least understood the need for it, and spoke freely, you see, discomfort forces much-needed transformation. Even at the hands of nature, organisms go through incredibly tough growth periods. When penguins molt, the, molt they lose their waterproof coat, leaving them unable to feed at sea. This often means they struggle and lose Fast amounts of weight, but eventually they bounce back better than ever, ready for a new phase of life. Now I know we're not penguins. We don't have feathers, and we seem to think we have a much more complex society. But can we equate the need seafood to our parents? shortage of empathy. Can we compare every kilogram, every displaced feather to a point of view misunderstood? Just as if they temporarily lose their vital coating, can we lose our pride? So next time you see an awkward conversation coming, 
but you also see an opportunity for education or broaden horizons. Take down the shield of sarcasm. Face the difficulty head on and channel your inner penguin. Very nice. Very nice. He, he's not my usual tack, but I do really like reading it. <laughs> it's a lovely piece. I enjoyed it very much. The first time I read it at an event, people kept sending me penguin emojis. <laughs> That's funny. Well, I think it's a, a you did a marvelous metaphor that you know the the decoration uh, of, with our, our all our pretty ideals. Uh, and and you you call for candor, and I think that's marvelous. We we need to educate ourselves and and treat each other with more humanity. That's for sure. Yeah, I, about three months ago, I sort of came to a realization that I don't know whether it's the same in America, but we have a sort of very British way about things, where we would sort of rather make sarcastic jokes than actually get to the the sort of debate of what's happening or the issue of what's happening. And I started writing a lot on that. And the penguin was just a nice example for a nature-themed thing I was doing at the time. Oh, very nice. I would like to read one for you. This is called Sea Watch, and it's about uh, immigrants uh, trying to come to Europe, trying to, to leave their da very dangerous lives behind, and uh, uh, some very, very brave sailors who, who uh, rescued a lot of people. Uh, it's called Sea Watch 3. I'm bringing them to safety, so said Renate. The stinking ship was sinking. The darling, daring crew knew what to do. Would you? These darlings plucked, ran out of luck, fast blasted from the dunking, drunken seas were struck. I'm bringing them to safety. She has started she has stated, whomever once upon the sea related. She dared, she said. She cared, she said. She bled into the port, the broken ship skid, the captain hide. The heaving seas were round their knees, voices upraised, buffeted, bare. The keening prayer was sounded. They stuttered, shouted. Lampedusa, they saw that night, Lampedusa's forbidden bite, unbidden blockade, friendless, baited, bayed and barred, land bobbed in their frighted sight, forbidden, barred they all should drown, bring not that burden untied, unbound, that desperate cargo, dearly dying, better there than scattered, Trying on the shore, the share unworked, 
Europe bounty, freedom life they shirked. When from Afrique's murder, strife, I'm bringing them to safety, she calmly stated. Renate's ship rumbled out from danger's graves. They stumbled all humbled, hungry, numbered, dashed. They splashed with the ocean's lash, untreated, wife and child death, salt dunked and drunken danger's strife. She plucked them, life, against them, against the law that barred these children's strife. Born, stolen from salty jaws, I'm bringing them to safety, she repeated, when the officers of the law completed, charging her with rescue, wily, though they smiled shyly. We'd rather had you failed, they said, when you from the watery grave sailed, break, break through the blockade without the trade. Such evil hatchlings' plans betrayed. When desperate they tilted toward the shore, no more designed. Divine the door toward heaven and the end of strife or shore. Toward the mean device, I'm bringing them to safety, she reiterated. When the cameras and the law bore down, when she walked the shore, she heard the murderous hate adorning law's door. Lawless and rich, the German bitch, to throw these out on our unwelcoming beach, she plundered, pirate plucking these from death. Is there no law protecting landsmen from this theft? No place to hide this brazen death-denying bride, carrying those unwanted dropped ashore to stroll our lands unrolled? When they otherwise silent prop block plopped on death's western welcoming doom door, not here at the ancient door of Rome, once civilized and so more before, when some welcomed once the pride and prince's nation, now they spurn these lowly broken a station, bitch bride of German prideful stride. Without her, all these hundreds died, and she only mogs and begs us listen at these luckless pluck from waves that glisten, whom she please, and this quite stately, I'm bringing them all to shore, to safety. The hate pours out, the dam is broken, by races shouting, parlors token, ply our seas, disturb our sleep, protect those others from the salty waters, steep and crashing plunders, and yet she sighs upon the waters, there is law, we are all daughters before the fall, and fain would stand above the stained waves and pluck men from watery graves. Disturb your slender sleep, ye Trojan desperate, whom Carthage sought, when ye were homeless, tossed across the desert seas, when Carthage would have broken you, thieves, as you stole from broken, broken crimes, dashed from home, you rootless climbed, grieving, hopeless, unvoid, only Dido let you weary rest when all your Trojans failed the test. I'll leave it there, but I think you get the idea. It's it's a very good poem, and as I'm sure you're aware, over here, immigration is a hot-button issue, and has been for quite some time, and, and the pictures you see of the boats coming into Dover, and, but something I've never really understood, about it is that we keep 
thought of making these rules for these immigrants, for these people who are coming to safety, but they're rules that don't even apply to our own society we've got at the minute. Like, um, there was something a little while ago where they sort of made bans for certain skill levels, jobs, and nurses weren't even far enough up the bands for them to be allowed in. And it's like, I'm, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the NHS, but it's, it's a real diverse organisation. So you're pretty much stopping thousands of doctors coming in to Britain doesn't make any sense when we're already understaffed, underfunded. Well, do you want to read one more, Kizzy, before we go? Yes. Please do. Um, I'll read a disability-themed one this time. So this one's called Coming to Terms with It. It's a relatively old one, but... Um, it's one that keeps coming back into my life and it's got me a few opportunities. For a bit of background, I have quadriplegic cerebral palsy, which means I use a wheelchair and my left hand's pretty useless. Um, I also have various concentration issues. And, um, but coming to terms with it. When discussing disability, people talk about coming to terms with it, but they talk about it as if it's a one-time thing. And although some things never change, like the physical implications of my issues, what it means for my life alters greatly. As my age alters, and as I alter a person. For example, I can't walk. I'm currently aged 16, and it affects me differently to how it affected me at six. No, it's all about the way it limits my independence, whereas then it was about my inability to use a scooter. Although the latter may seem trivial now, it was a, as big a deal to me then as independence is to me now. But at the age when I was working through my scooter obsession, I didn't have the foresight to think about teenage freedom. Our priorities change, and so do the priorities that Faces. That's just the ever-growing nature of life and its milestones. But unfortunately, that means that just as we settle within our own capabilities, the barriers get closer to home. So we have to keep realising what we can't do. 
We have to keep finding ways to understand, get around, and beat our disabilities. We have to keep dealing with the complex feeling of anger and sadness that that brings with it. Priorities aside, something needs change. The way we as disabled people talk about this. Let's stop answering with sarcastic parking quips when friends ask us what our situation feels like. Let's disregard the mood of the room and tell the truth. Let's tell them how most days you realise and you can't and it's only on occasion you realise and you can. Let's tell them how it feels to have a mind that operates at 100 miles per hour and a body that barely accelerates to one. Let's tell them how it feels to be able to achieve the extraordinary, but never the ordinary. If this has felt like a man, I'm not sorry. It's just that I think 16 years without a solitary toilet trip gives me a unique perspective. That might open some frank conversations about real experiences without fake smiles. Thank you. Wow, that's very, very powerful. Thank you so much, Kizzy. It's been a real wonder visiting with you today. And thank you so much for sharing your writing. You write beautifully. Thank you. I really enjoyed your point, too, and thanks again for having me. It's been a really fun conversation. Good. And you have a wonderful day, I insist. And take care of yourself, okay? Okay. Before we go, can I um, talk about my social media? Please. Please. Um, you can find me on Facebook at Kizzy Made Poetry, and you can find me on Instagram at Kizzy underscore Wade underscore Poetry. I also have a passion for radical um, education, so you can find a link to my um, my collective that I started this around that at Radical Curriculum Fellowship and at Radical is good with um, Tuesday Rodents to do us on Facebook and Instagram. I will do. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. You have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Well, Misha, I, I have never heard such a fantastic articulation of some of the challenges that our otherwise abled friends have. Uh, I thought it was just an amazing poem and uh, just gave you a real feel for, for some of what they go through. This is true. I'm completely amazed. I'm, I repeat, I have the same feeling. It, I feel almost silented, muted by her power by her maturity, courage of telling things their real names, their proper names, and 
by the maturity and the strength and the um, complexity of her judgments, of her seeing and uh, understanding the world we belong in. And I would say that she understands this world much better than this world understands her. And this is evident. One of the other things that I thought was just so beautifully articulated was when she said, well, we know the extraordinary. We do the extraordinary. But it's the ordinary that eludes us. And I thought, my God, what a great encapsulation. What a great insight. This is almost a philosophical poem. And um, I'm not at all surprised she concentrates hypocrisies on haikus because she's trying to to concentrate the expression of her wisdom, profundity, uh, intellectual profundity of her erudition into only a couple of words. And it is the haiku that offers her maybe the best opportunity or those classical European aphorisms, aphorisma, um, which she all, which sometimes she publishes in, uh, uses to publish at, uh, on Instagram or on, uh, on Facebook. A really remarkable personality, an exceptional one. And I keep fingers crossed for her career. I keep finger, fingers crossed for her as a human being because if managing in life as a human being, she will manage also a brilliant career in everything she would choose to follow as the field of studies. Absolutely. And for her as a poet, good luck and congratulations once again, Kizzy Wade. Absolutely. Well, now we have a very different writer. A very different one. who is so amazingly talented. Uh, She puts her pen to so many different adventures. Uh, I know her first as a poet. I came to know her as a novelist. And I watched her career blossom as a screenwriter. Uh, This is not just a woman. This is an unstoppable force. This is very, a very well characterization, and congratulations, dear Rick. Yes, that's right. What I wanted to add, actually, you, you just tell it, told it in different words. She's one of those personalities, one of those voices whose power is able to determine and to precise the rhythm, the tone, the atmosphere within a whole national literature, a real career and professional career writer oh my whole admiration looking forward looking forward to hear what she's going to bring us today and without any further ado ladies and gentlemen and my friend misha miss deborah hodges ladies and gentlemen i want to bring you today a writer a novelist a poet a screenwriter a woman of so many good words, ladies and gentlemen, Miss Deborah Hodgins. Deborah, welcome. Hi, good afternoon. It's great to be here. Um, I hope you're well, Rick. Um, I am. I am. <laughs> and hello to all of the listeners. Thank you so much, Deborah. You have so many different writing talents. 
you know, sometimes you wear a novelist hat, sometimes you write a screenplay material, and, and you're also a wonderful poet of, of great charm. Thank and, you. And eloquence. What have you been up to lately? What's on your writing desk today? Okay, so um, I've been very busy <laughs> during, during the pandemic. Um, I've set up my own company, um, which went live in January of this year. And um, since October, um, pre the company going live, <laughs> I've just been working flat out um, for clients writing for magazines and blog posts in the USA, in Australia, and in the UK. Um, incredibly busy. Um, and now I've, I'm working with a very, very big client um, uh, on a huge project. So um, I'm busy doing that. Um, I'm also writing another feature film. Um, and I'm waiting to hear about a feature film which is in a competition at the moment, hoping to hear about that shortly. And then I've been writing a, a few poems um, and I'm hoping to release a new poetry collection later in the year. So lots happening. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Of course, I'm wishing you every success, every Thank success. You. Thank you. So that your your novel audience will be, I'm sure, sitting at the edge of their chair waiting for your next piece there. Uh, and and uh, I know that your your screenplays will just take the market by a storm. So I wish Thanks. you success there. And I have heard the eloquence of your poetic voice many times, and I look forward to hearing it again. Before we get started with that, though, I want you to talk a little bit about um, when you started writing, when you first realized that you were a writer. Talk a little bit about that. Mm. Okay, so I kind of caught the buzz for writing um, when I was seven years old, actually. Um, my Late mom, starter, huh? <laughs> my my mom um, is also a poet, and she she used to go around the circuits um, in my hometown and I used to go with her and listen to her perform her poetry in all these different places um, but also my grandmother was a poet as well she used to write poetry so there's a little bit of a lineage there um, and then I kind of really passionately wanted to write when I was seven um, and I used to write little stories um, and poems and you know and try and get sage advice from my mum and my grandma um, and then when I left school kind of things kind of shifted um, and I got an art scholarship when I was seven as well so my um, kind of move I moved slightly away, away from the writing into the art um, kind of side of things um, and then in 2004 um, I rediscovered writing <laughs> um, with a passion um, and when I was very pregnant with my daughter 
um, I just started writing lots, lots then. And then I slightly drifted off again. <laughs> and then in 2013, um, 2012 actually, um, I was involved in a major car accident. Um, and I had to have two years of uh, rehabilitation um, to kind of put myself back together because it's quite a major car accident. I'm sorry to hear that. And um, so I basically returned to back to my writing, and one of my friends said to me, um, "What I think you should do <laughs> is write a blog. Why don't you, um, you know, create a blog and put some of your work on there and just see how." to see how it goes so I thought okay um, I've got nothing else to do and you know it was a healing healing modality uh, modality for me um, to do you know the writing was quite healing so so that's what I did and it was just incredible um, I think within the, a week of me actually starting to post things on my blog, I was getting between, um, I was getting around about 500 to 1,000 people visiting the blog. And I was thinking, this is, this is a little bit, woo. Um, so, yeah, so that's kind of where that all began. And then I had um, some poetry picked up by a couple of magazines over in the States and I started writing for one of them on a regular basis um, and having my work published over in, in America. Um, I then had a, a number of poems published in various poetry collections in the UK as well, anthologies. And yes, yeah, so that's where my kind of journey began with with, you know, getting published and getting out into the world. Um, and then I started getting uh, being asked to actually perform at different events in the UK. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I then uh, moved over to write um, a young adult novel um, called The Curtain Twitchers of Oakley Place, um, which done really well um, in the UK and over in America and all of the royalties from that I donate to homeless charities. How wonderful. Good of you. How good of you. So, you come from a line of writers. How nice is that? Uh, you've had great success already at your young age. My goodness gracious, good for you. And, and you do performance as well. And, and you know as well as I that a lot of writers aren't necessarily comfortable performing as well. So bravo to you, my dear, bravo. And uh, I, I understand that uh, your writing has, has addressed some very serious issues uh, over the last uh, year. And uh, I want to ask you if you would consider reading some of your work 
whether you deal with some of the local recent poetry or something that's uh, a little further back, whatever you're most comfortable sharing. Yeah, what, what would you like to share? I'm going to do um, a, a couple of poems, um, a poem that I wrote last year, um, and then I've got a couple of poems um, from my poetry book, <laughs> A Universe of Love. So I thought I'd, I'd dibble and um, possibly read a couple of those as well. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, so the first, the first one's called Breaking Free, um, and this is a poem that I wrote last year um, when we were kind of midst of the uh, beginning, you know, the middle part of the pandemic, and things were not so not so great for everybody. Um, okay, so it's called Breaking Free. Tears are not enough when hearts beat heavy, weary souls slide from day to day, like a coral spring wound tight against lost freedoms. Ideals shattered and shifting sands lap breaking hearts. I hope for peace, for release from my nightmares pressing ever near. Beautiful, beautiful. Yes, I think... uh, in a funny way, COVID and this whole experience of being locked in uh, has really spurred a, a renaissance of, of writing and uh, given people the time even to uh, to sit there and put pen to paper or, mm. uh, or keyboard to uh, fingers. <laughs> um, would, you, would you like to recite another one? Yeah, sure. Um, Okay, so this one um, I wrote in 2019. Um, There were a lot of things happening in in the UK um, and obviously, you know, all the political um, unrest over in the States as well with the George Floyd incident. Um, So this is a a poem that I wrote um, which kind of encapsulates Um, some of those feelings, I think, that were captured at that time. This one's called Silently Screaming. This angry rhetoric that storms my brain holds me down, relentless, controlling, until I can breathe no more. An endless cycle of never-ending days that you imprison me in. Days of nightmare strewn sadness, those days of happy surrender, a distant memory. I long for, scream for, let me out, please. I can take no more. Lovely, lovely. Powerful work, powerful. May I offer you one of my COVID poems? Yes, please. I, uh... (laughs) I'm I'm one of those poets that because I think I think in large part because I deal with so many serious subjects, I apply lavishly a little humor to the subject. So this is one that I call Down from the Trees. On the subject of being locked up, right? <laughs> Down from the trees. Honey baby, tell me please. Since we're not so long down from the trees, 
You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Up in the branches or down on deeply polished floors. We like reciprocal, you and me. Ever since we balanced on the limb of a tree, whether out in the car or up in the tree, I'll groom you and you groom me. The one thing now that's left for us, as the virus sends a fence between what we really feel and what we really mean, with you so far away on the other side of the glowing screen another day, we wave weekly how I miss your sweet perfume and the many ways, darling, you decorate a room. The distance mars our love sealed up behind the screen's glass walls untouched. Oh, honey baby, tell me, please, since we're really not that long down from the trees, I wish you were here to find and pick off all my fleas. We're isolated, out of touch, and miles away, my fingers clutch in disarray, my clothes askew. What I wouldn't give for you to have your seat beside me here with your fingers searching my matted hair, even to have you look with scorn at the clothes piled round the room I've worn. I'd even eat the toast you'd burn if I could beside you touch and warmly turn. Love it. Beautiful. Really beautiful. I, I tried to I tried to to mix that uh, that longing, you know, and the technology, and, and yet that ancient urge, you know, to please touch me. Connect with people. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, you, you found your way, uh, and, and you're doing some screenwriting treatments. How, how would you contrast writing for the screen, uh, writing for the for the drama, should we say, the film presentation versus writing short stories or novels? What, how's that experience been for you? Yeah, it's it's um, an interesting experience because every <laughs> every um, aspect of all of those Rick, is completely different, um, and you have to the way you approach them um, is very different as well. Um, but surprisingly, um, what I've found with the screenwriting is um, a lot of a lot of the poetry, the language, and the descriptiveness um, comes through as well. Um, and another another um, angle also is that I'm currently um, pursuing is writing podcasts. Um, and I'm writing a, a podcast series um, for two clients at the moment. Um, so that's a, a completely different, <laughs> that's a slightly different approach as well. So I think it's learning how to use language in such a way that it conveys more than the words itself. Does that make sense? Sure, um, sure. That it speaks that it speaks louder and reaches reaches out to a wider audience, I think. Um, and it's, yeah, it, it, it's, it's using words and language in a different way. Um, and I think if, if you're mindful of how those words work that you're using, um, 
and how how they connect with people that you know kind of makes a big difference. I think. I'm I'm curious. Um, when you say you're writing for podcasts, is it a dramatic presentation or is it uh, to engage dialogue with an audience? Yeah, the first the first one, um, and I can I can announce what is what the actual podcast series is is going to be called it's called um the human factor and um it's a slightly topical podcast series um we're going to be covering lots of um you know topical matters that are in and out in the public domain and we're also going to be working with a mathematician to kind of see how um you know, science and mathematics kind of can come up with solutions to um, these topics, really, um, in in a different way. So I'm I'm the uh, main writer and uh, the senior producer on that um, on this podcast series, um, and we're hoping that it will go live May June of this year. So that's wonderful. <laughs> a science writer too. My goodness, Deborah, you're a woman of so many talents. <laughs> I try. <laughs> no, 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 no. You succeed. Good for you. Good for you. Um, would you like to share another poem with us? Hmm, yes, please. Um, okay, so this this one is taken from my poetry collection, A Universe of Love. Um, and it's called I Love You. You are beautiful, the scent of a summer's day, the warmth of the sun. Lay by my side in the dewy grass and let us drift away. Let me hold your hand, let me guide your footsteps with gentle love. For you are my beautiful, my one true love. Very lovely, very lovely. Well, you know, I find you so inspiring. I I do want to offer one more of mine to you, and I'm, mm. I, I'm going to stay in a in a COVID theme since I haven't seen you in so long, and and how this echoes the separations. You know, um, <laughs> this is uh, one of those situations that has come to us since COVID, uh, and uh, I I don't know how how. Uh, this is perceived over over your way, but uh, one of the things that, that uh, Americans have been uh, urged to do is uh, to make sure that the groceries that arrive are, are, are clean and, and safe, uh, virus-free and all, and who knows how many hands they've been through. So, so I wrote this. It's called Scrubbing Groceries. <laughs> A new world of shopping's true we scrub our food, even though they're new. No new plate waiting till food's well scrubbed, each and every virus beaten, drubbed. Not into the house till all in suds are dipped, no longer direct to kitchen carried, ferried, chipped. A longer path through suds are buried, cause that virus sure has us all quite worried. Out in the yard, it's scrubbed and cleaned till it's earned its entry into the house, after it's dipped and dripped through the antiseptic screen, scrub twice, 
till's all squeaky clean. That's true. But what's today's COVID shopper to do? Before it's packed or in the pan with gloved hands scrubbed till paint's worn thin. Reducing the biota on its surface, that could surely make us all quite nervous. Till it's clean enough for going in, may these small efforts, saints preserve us with these new steps in the shopping cycle service. We bring it home, and then we wipe all, lest we sunset find and nightfall. <laughs> a scrubbing bowl and cleanser kept close till it's cleaned into the house and don't ghost. <laughs> Some we spray and others dunk. We study science or else we're sunk. Each item from the bag gets dumped. Each veggie piled into a lump handled carefully might carry bugs using disinfectant and scrubbing bubbles tug, hug, and scrub. Scrubbing till all surface shines like yours, clean indeed, just like mine. The glass, the plastic, tumble, liquids dipped, but cardboard boxes sprayed with disinfectant strong, allowing no impure packaging, because it'd be wrong. <laughs> but not a morsel touches lips until the sanitation fairies visit. We all these varied precautions follow, it is or tisn't, no noshing, finger food forbid till scrubbed and wiped and carried. Once groceries all are scrubbed and bugs subdued, we carried in and now it becometh food. They've carried in with ice cream melted with all those viri been beaten, pelted. A whole new wrinkle in shopping's tedium, reducing biota on the surface medium. Till all's been scrubbed and put away, now I'm dropping. Done. Hooray. <laughs> Bravo. Thank you, my dear. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I hate to ask such a busy girl to tell us even more. Can you can you read another poem for us? Yeah, of course. This is very short. It's a very short one, so I might do two if that's ticking. Oh, oh, please, please. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> okay, so um, this one, um, again, is from A Universe Above, and it's called Flow. From my pen the stories ran, downpouring, sweet flowing, to catch each word, my sincere plan. Very nice. Another, please, another, another. <laughs> <laughs> the twinkle of love. The light of your love twinkled like a beautiful star. For you, my love, I love you from afar. Oh, you write so beautifully, my dear. I, I can't help but say I'm looking forward to seeing that that next Deborah Hodgetts on the big screen, you know? <laughs> Thank you. We speak to writers from all ages, from all time, uh, some who've been at it for years and years and some who've just started. Um, if you were to make a suggestion to some of our younger writers, mm. what, what suggestion would you make to, to a writer Okay, if if I was talking to someone who's just setting out on their journey, I would say write what's in your heart, write what you know, um, and don't don't be um, led astray by what other people might say. You should write what you want to write. Um, you know, I think I. When I started my journey, I kind of fell into the trap of 
following what other people were saying um, and, and the ideas um, that they were giving me. And then I sat down and I thought about it and I thought, actually, the best, the best thing that I could do and the best thing that I would share with somebody who's just setting out on their journey is to always, always write from the heart, always write from you. <laughs> and because there's no, there's no point really um, writing something that you're not comfortable with writing or that you don't believe in and, and that doesn't resonate with you because the words will not um, resonate with other people. Um, I think it's a heart connection. You have to have that heart connection with your writing and with what you're writing because, you know, in a, in a way, you're quite responsible for, for the words <laughs> that you actually apply to the paper or, or to the computer because other people will, will see them, other people will hear them, so and it will make a difference to them. So I think you need to be quite mindful as well um, about how you use how you use words as well. Think how they will connect with other people because that will make a huge difference. I attended a computer conference a couple of years ago, and uh, there was an executive from one of the big media companies, and he wanted to give people good news. He said, you know. We have been able to get AI to the point where more and more publishers are using AI to write stories, weather stories, sports stories, especially stories that are simple, just the facts, you know, you sprinkle a few colorful adjectives in there and you've got a story. And he's going, this is so fantastic. We can cut writers completely out of the business. And, and none of that tedious, personal, human stuff, you know, it's just, wow, it's great. We can make all kinds of money. Any questions out there? And I put my hand up and I said, you know, I know several human writers who have a real position on that. <laughs> <laughs> we are in favor of human writers. Um, and I said, on the other hand, looking at it from your point of view, if you can just get computers to read your computer-generated nonsense, you can cut people completely out of the equation entirely. <laughs> now, if you can get them to do that and then buy the product, we can dispense with this tiresome humanity all at once. <laughs> and the funny thing was he was so shocked. He really didn't expect to hear from a writer. <laughs> because, of course, he's dispensed with those. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. as amazing as technology is, uh, I'll, I'll take a human writer any day of the week, and especially one as charming and talented as yourself. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, sir, that was Miss Deborah Hodges. Any thoughts? Well, actually, the way you are putting it, and even the tonality of your voice, inspires, suggests that it is almost nothing to be added after such a <laughs> strong voice, such strong 
poetry, uh, such strong pieces of poetry have been presented and uh, such a complex intellectual argumentation has been uh, has been brought uh, for uh, for um, sustaining or supporting this poetry even if actually if you are if you are asking me there was no need of intellectually arguing of, or intellectually supporting this poetry because it supports very well by itself and I want to congratulate you also for uh, for the inspirational selection of the poems you uh, presented during this dialogue it was just a complete uh, just a, a com just an integrated uh, integrated and complete uh, material very well very well done and uh, those poems um, were complementary to each other and uh, fulfilled between themselves very well maybe I would there only to add that uh, this strong voice which is only uh, uh, precising giving the word giving the meaning giving the the direction because it is a very not only a strong and and talented but also a dominating voice for joy generation and within uh, her national uh, literature but not only literature as we see also screenplay writing um, that uh, it is quite impressive that it did not give up the sensitivity sensitivity as uh, important as a very important dimension of uh, the literary uh, talent and if you allow me because both of you had a quite impressive dialogue about um, COVID teams and uh, because the register of this dialogue was very various and uh, which actually helped to the uh, complexity and variety of uh, your dialogue please would you allow me to add also a short text mine about COVID just like a hold your attitude towards uh, towards this uh, uh, world problem and uh, to and to and towards uh, and to her uh, talent and sensitivity absolutely my brother absolutely thank you Lead very on, much I really <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot I really appreciate this and I will read something short I wrote when I was lying in hospital with COVID some two or three months ago actually three months ago it is called diagnosis and uh, as usually it was translated into English by my good friend uh, the talented Slovak poetess uh, Judith Andol. We were born asymptomatic. We were granted an asymptomatic contamination. We were hospitalized as asymptomatic. Therefore, the therapy symptomatic. Discharge forms are issued at own risk and based on workplace certificate we are no standard cases, but unexploited niche opportunities. Drinking water available in the emergency room. Thank you very much, dear Rick. This was my modest hold to you and to Deborah. Well, thank you so much, my friend, as always, for your wonderful contributions. Uh, this show could not go on without your help. 
thank you again. And uh, I'll lead them out with a little bit of music. It's uh, one of those wonderful things uh, that I like to do here. Uh, this is a little piece called Which Side Are You On? Oh, yes, I know. It. It's wonderful. A wonderful idea. I have no doubt which side you're on, my brother. Thank you again so very much. Have a wonderful evening. A lot. The same to you. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you for making me a part of this wonderful enterprises of you, wonderful literary, uh, media, and intellectual enterprises of you. And I can assure you, dear Rick, I am on the side of poetry. All the best. That's for sure. Talk to you soon, brother. Bye-bye. And good night, everyone. Thank you all for listening.